So concerning cities, a large consists of um, a graphic wall, uh, essentially made up of patterns, and each of these patterns represents a different typology of the city. So you know, a square square represents public space, a star represents spaces after dark, circles represent public transport, and so on. And what it does is kind of creates this kind of pattern of what a city is like underneath the, the, the representation of the city. So Melbourne and Venice, they're beautiful cities that have you know, a, a real attraction to tourists, a real attraction for the people who live there. But nonetheless, there is an underbelly to all of our cities in which we live that makes it challenging for women, girls and gender diverse people to actually traverse the city, to feel safe in the places that they live in. And we want to engage people and help them reveal that data. So utilising their phone, we have augmented reality embedded within the work and utilising their phone, people can actually reveal the data and see, I guess, what the data represents. So for example, you know, 64.4% of LGBTIQ students have been sexually harassed at school. That's a, you know, from K to 12, from primary to high school. That's a huge amount of people that, um, because of their identity, have been harassed in some way. So we need to make people aware of that particular type of data and potentially, one, see themselves within it, or two, get them to respond. How might they respond to that particular challenge? How does that translate into the work that you're doing with XYX Lab? So XYX Lab has existed for around six years, and over that time we've gathered data from globally, from around the world, but also from Australia, through our own research and gathering together the data from like a whole bunch of other researchers. But what's important for us is to try and make that data visible. Frequently, you know, data pertaining to gendered violence and gendered experiences of unsafety in the city are concealed within reports, like government reports or potentially mm. academic journals, but they never really get a public outing where people on the street can actually see it and understand the, I guess, the depth of the challenge. And this is a challenge that is, has lasted for a really long time. It's centuries old. And, you know, I, we don't pretend that what we're doing will actually solve it in a, in a heartbeat, but what we want to do is to make people alert and aware of the challenges that you know, a, a portion of our city faces. You know, people who don't feel safe in their own city is a, an uncomfortable statistic to sit with, yeah. particularly for those who potentially do feel comfortable. And we want to make people realise that you know, through creative means and through kind of public dissemination that this data is real, but it's also valuable. We can respond to it in by you know, getting people to think about how they might respond to that data. Is mm. there you know, policy makers or people that we can lobby to actually invest in the data and push for change for, uh, to get you know, the, the problems that are apparent in our cities to actually start to be addressed. And as I said, it won't be addressed immediately, but at least if we can push forward the idea that these are challenges that need to be addressed, mm -hmm. then that's something that we should be doing. 
And if we, like, just in terms of the, you know, what's been in the news at the moment, I do the, like, the, um, drag story time in our public libraries, our suburban public libraries just being shut down because people are wrongly concerned about the, the challenge that, you know, that somehow that particular process is grooming our children. It's ridiculous. It's silly and wrong, but, Councils are closing it down because of the fear of the safety of all the people involved in that particular um, you know, process. It's like these are things that are happening under our noses all the time, and yeah. we need to be aware of it. And that's what the exhibition is about: is to kind of make public all of that data. I see. So, I, you speak a lot about you know data. So, how do you guys make this data engaging? How does it? Like translate mm -hmm. to the normal person. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question because when you talk about data, you know, occasionally people's eyes roll into the back of their head, go, "Oh, data, <laughs> so not interesting." But it is. It's, <laughs> and we're kind of confronted with increasing amounts of data. Data's really easy to collate and collect, and there's an overwhelming amount of data out there. Mm. So what we want to do is draw out the most kind of powerful piece of data and get people to, as I said before, potentially they see themselves represented in it. If you're an, um, a student in a high school who represents as non-binary or LGBTIQ, then you know that you're not alone in that experience. There's 64.4 other people who have experienced some sort of harassment because of that. And there's somehow, there's, I know it, like the number is extraordinary and it's awful and it's wrong, but yeah. it's also powerful to know that you're a part of a larger community of people who can actually be supported, be represented and be fought for. And that's, I think, the difference between just representing data in like a bar chart or a you know, Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. No one's going to with that data. But no, if we can make it publicly accessible and creatively interesting and um, confronting and challenging at the same time, then I think it has much more impact. You mentioned the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. How would you say that they're particularly at risks, risk in cities? Uh, we, uh, we know that um, there's an extraordinary number of uh, of data, disturbing data <clears throat> around, you know, the, the amount of homelessness, for example, suicide ideation, um, the you know, like drug abuse challenges, all of those sorts of things are disproportionately represented in LGBTIQ communities alongside just the general sexual harassment that occurs at schools, at bars, at clubs, in workplaces. These are not new statistics to us. And I think that the, the important thing, like there's never been a more important time to champion the, um, <clears throat> the I guess, the backing of the LGBTIQ community because they're confronting globally such a backlash of kind of, I guess, super right-wing kind of political uh, trauma that so shouldn't be a part of a 21st century, 2023 dialogue. But then there's these highlights as well, like the fact that we have the Pride Centre proudly centred in Fitzroy Street and St Kilda with the extraordinarily powerful LGBTIQ groups embedded within it. This is focal point, this touchstone of change 
But I think, yes, there's, you know, alongside the, the challenging data, there's also these positive stories that we need to realise are a result of acknowledging that those challenges existed and there needs to be a response to it. And the Pride Centre is a perfect example of that. You know, if you can... I'm a, uh, you know, someone who grew up in the 1970s and 80s, and I could never imagine that in those those years that there would ever be a, you know, a pride center, an extraordinary building, but that stands for so much more than just bricks and mortar. This is a you know, powerhouse of the LGBTIQ community, and the reason it's come about is because there's been a response to data and a need for recognising that change had to occur. So what inspired you? Like, why is this work personally so meaningful to you? Uh, I guess for for me, all the work that XYXLab does and all all the members of XYXLab are all uh, represent, like designers represented through architecture, through communication design, through design theory, through um, interior and spatial expertise. And all of us have come together because we share the same passion and the same desire to, I guess, put our design expertise to use in a in a way that can navigate change and to actually help make visible the challenges that uh, women, girls, and gender diverse people have navigating their way through our cities. And for me, that's a, a really important thing that I feel like I practice as a designer, as a someone who puts things into the public realm. <clears throat> it's not about saying dog food or anything like that. It's about making people aware of the the cities in which they live in and the experiences of people who are either like them or are not like them, but making people realise that there is another side to the, the city experience. So, yeah, it's that sense that my design practice is mm. contributing to change. I see. No, that's honestly, that's really important in the current like landscape of the world and in the media. That's like a really, really mm. important thing. What kind of stories, like whose stories have you told in your work or what kind of stories do you tell in your work? Um, so we... I have over the years utilized a number of projects. Like we did a project in collaboration with CrowdSpot um, two years ago, one year ago, uh, called Your Ground. <clears throat> and what Your Ground did was get people from, uh, from across the city um, and into kind of regional cities as well mm. to tell us one where they felt safe but also where they didn't feel safe. I see. But it's all well and good being able to collect that, that you know, quantitative data. You know, ten people felt safe here, you know, two people didn't feel safe here, therefore it's eighty percent safe. That's kind of somewhat of a useful piece of data. But what we're really interested in is the lived experience stories that identify why those spaces were safe or unsafe. And so through those publicly accessible platforms, such as Your Ground, we were able to collate uh, not just data around safety in our cities, but people's lived experience, their stories of they didn't feel safe in that particular uh, space, but they also told us why. For example, a young uh, 
LGBTI to identifying women did not feel safe on utilizing an underpass in Armadale. Armadale is one of the kind of salubrious suburbs in the city. Mm. Yet there is this space, this dark underpass that she did not feel safe in. And it ends with her saying that the only action she was able to deploy was if she was followed in there, she would keep running. And that became the, I guess, the inspiration for our next project, the Keep Running Project, was because that's frequently the act that people you know, deploy to escape the danger that they're in, is to just run from it. And as a group, as a group of researchers, we don't want to run from it. We want to identify it and confront it and make other people do similar. So I guess for, for us, the, the lived experience, the, the, the reasons why people feel safe and unsafe in our public spaces is super valuable. We understand so much more about the why. And if we can identify spaces that are safe, then we also develop a typology of safety for public space. We understand why they feel safe and what are the kind of aspects. Is it about the lighting? Is it about being able to see ahead? Is it about feeling like you're not alone in the space but at mm. the same time not overcrowded and potentially threatened? There is a particular way that we can get with data and it's also super nuanced as well. This is a deeply intersectional space. Like, you know, that women, girls, and LGBTI uh, people are you know, represented across different cultures, across different religious organisations, across different age groups, across different abilities, across different even areas of the city, from the you know, far outer suburbs to the inner mm-hmm. suburban. It's different and nuanced for each of those people's experiences. And if we can gather the breadth of uh, data from those people, then we can actually start to help um, particular councils and organisations to say so these are the exemplar spaces and why, and you can then start to replicate them. And we can actually start to facilitate change in that way. Mm, no, I definitely did a lot of like when I was moving apartments. I think like trying to find a really safe area was something that was super important to me. And, like, especially as an Mm. international, it was, like, really difficult actually finding real information on certain areas and how safe they were in comparison with what I was talking to people about. Mm -hmm. Frequently, that data is not represented, you know, because it has an effect of, oh, Mm. we're conceding to the fact that our city might not be altogether safe. Mm. No city is altogether safe. And you're right, that sort of data is important for people to, if they're new to the city, to understand where they might feel, one, connected to a community that they want mm-hmm. to be a part of, that is safe, and you know, close to the amenities that also make them feel, and what might those amenities be. And, yeah, I mean, yours is a perfect example of why that data should actually be available and accessible. Yeah. So, I guess, speaking um, on your um, your ground project, your report states that LGBTQI people recorded a higher incidence of spaces that were entrapping, and queer people are also highly concerned about the behavior of others in public spaces. Why would like why is this? Mm. Um, I think that's a, um, a question that has been a part of the queer community's experience of cities for centuries. Is that 
there is a sense, like you can never be certain of the allyship that's around you <laughs> unless you kind of, you know, on you know, Pride March where there's a distinct ally alignment, then why would you even assume that someone that's a part of a, a large group of people might actually be prepared to support you? And I think that's a part of it. And for centuries and centuries, the, you know, your identity had to be in some way disguised or hidden or kept at bay, changed even. We have moved past that now, but there's still people within the community who haven't moved past that. So <clears throat> there's will, I guess, always be that sense of maybe it's not even a, a real threat, but a perceived threat, a perceived sense of not feeling safe is as debilitating, is as challenging, is as frightening to that person. And I think that that's been a, you know, a part of the LGBTIQ experience in cities for such a long time that it's difficult to change it, but we have to change it. And, um, yeah, the disproportionate, uh, sense of threat to the community is worrying and a reason why we should address the change. Mm. You also found that queer people are more sensitive to bad stories circulating about a location. It makes sense for people to be uh, impacted by the way a city is structured and feels and respond to it by self-excluding or navigating a different way around it or um, choosing particular times in which you feel safe to engage in it. So these are all strategies that people use to navigate the city, which means that they're not free to engage with it anytime, any place, and anywhere. So how would you say your creations tackle heteronormativity in Australian public space designs? The way that we do tackle that is by shining a spotlight on what heteronormative constructs of cities have actually resulted in. Spaces that are challenging for those who don't identify in that way. <clears throat> and that's the reality of what our cities are, but also there's the opportunity for those people to become allies. The communities that are deeply in- impacted by feeling unsafe in cities cannot necessarily resolve it on their own. They need the power and the influence of allies that support them. And I think that's a really important issue too, is that we need those who are able to make change and facilitate change mm-hmm. frequently, that heteronormative men who are in positions of power to understand the challenge, have compassion and empathy for the challenge and actually want to change it. So what are your hopes for consenting cities? Like all of our projects, what I hope Consenting Cities does is to reach a broader audience, in this case also an international audience. It's not just Italians who go to the Venice Biennale, it's the globe kind of goes to the Venice Mm -hmm. Biennale. And as much as the the Biennale celebrates the city, celebrates the structures that architects put into the city, what we're in doing is alerting really broad communities to the stuff that happens in between those buildings, inside those buildings, the interstitial spaces that are 
you know, created by the structures being together. You know, the, the city is more than a construction of you know, towers and spaces for people to live and work. They're also spaces that need to be accessible and safe for everyone and not just those who naturally feel safe in the urban environment. So I think for us, every project we do is pushing that message further and demonstrating the data and the facts and the research that indicates that these things need to be addressed.